Section 111 of India, Persia, Mesopotamia, and Palestine. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The World Story, Volume 2. India, Persia, Mesopotamia, and Palestine. Edited by Eva March Tappan. Section 111. The Tearing Down of England's Flag. 1191. By Sir Walter Scott. Richard I of England had barely been crowned when he set off on a crusade. With him were Philip of France and Leopold of Austria. Jealousy of Richard soon arose, and the two princes abandoned him and sought their own domains. In the following story, Scott has pictured one of their disagreements. The Editor The king was soon at the foot of St. George's Mount, the sides as well as platform of which were now surrounded and crowded, partly by those belonging to the Duke of Austria's retinue, who were celebrating with shouts of jubilee the act which they considered as an assertion of national honour, partly by bystanders of different nations, whom dislike to the English, or mere curiosity, had assembled together, to witness the end of these extraordinary proceedings. Through this disorderly troop Richard burst his way, like a goodly ship under full sail, which cleaves her forcible passage through the rolling billows, and heeds not that they unite after her passage and roar upon her stern. The summit of the eminence was a small level space on which were pitched the rival banners, surrounded still by the archduke's friends and retinue. In the midst of the circle was Leopold himself, still contemplating with self-satisfaction the deed he had done and still listening to the shouts of applause which his partisans bestowed with no sparing breath. While he was in this state of self-gratulation, Richard burst into the circle, attended indeed only by two men, but in his own headlong energies an irresistible host. "'Who has dared?' he said, laying hands upon the Austrian standard, and speaking in a voice like the sound which precedes an earthquake. "'Who has dared to place this paltry rag beside the banner of England?' The Archduke wanted not personal courage, and it was impossible he could hear this question without reply. Yet so much was he troubled and surprised by the unexpected arrival of Richard, and affected by the general awe inspired by his ardent and unyielding character, that the demand was twice repeated in a tone which seemed to challenge heaven and earth, ere the Archduke replied with such firmness as he could command, It was I, Leopold of Austria. Then shall Leopold of Austria, replied Richard, presently see the rate at which his banner and his pretensions are held by Richard of England. So saying, he pulled up the standard spear, splintered it to pieces, threw the banner itself on the ground, and placed his foot upon it. Thus, said he, I trample on the banner of Austria. Is there a knight among your Teutonic chivalry dare impeach my deed? There was a momentary silence but there are no braver men than the Germans. I, and I, and I, was heard from several knights of the Duke's followers, and he himself added his voice to those which accepted the King of England's defiance. Why do we dally thus, said the Earl Wallenrode, a gigantic warrior from the frontiers of Hungary. Brethren and noble gentlemen, this man's foot is on the honour of your country. Let us rescue it from violation and down with the pride of England. So saying, he drew his sword and struck at the king a blow which might have proved fatal had not the Scot intercepted and caught it upon his shield. 
I have sworn, said King Richard, and his voice was heard above all the tumult which now waxed wild and loud, never to strike one whose shoulder bears the cross. Therefore, live, Wallenrode, but live to remember Richard of England. As he spoke he grasped the tall Hungarian round the waist, and, unmatched in wrestling as in other military exercises, hurled him backwards with such violence that the mass flew as if discharged from a military engine, not only through the ring of spectators who witnessed the extraordinary scene, but over the edge of the mound itself, down the steep side of which Wallenrode rolled headlong until, pitching at length upon his shoulder, he dislocated the bone, and lay like one dead. This almost supernatural display of strength did not encourage either the duke or any of his followers to renew a personal contest so inauspiciously commenced. Those who stood farthest back did indeed clash their swords and cry out, Cut the island mastiff to pieces! But those who were nearer, veiled perhaps their personal fears under an affected regard for order, and cried for the most part, Peace! Peace! The peace of the cross! The peace of Holy Church and our Father the Pope! These various cries of the assailants contradicting each other showed their irresolution, while Richard, his foot still on the archducal banner, glared round him with an eye that seemed to seek an enemy, and from which the angry noble shrunk, appalled, as from the threatened grasp of a lion. De Vaux and the Knight of the Leopard kept their places beside him, and though the swords which they held were still sheathed, it was plain that they were prompt to protect Richard's person to the very last, and their size and remarkable strength plainly showed the defence would be a desperate one. Salisbury and his attendants were also now drawing near, with bills and partisans brandished, and bows already bended. At this moment King Philip of France, attended by one or two of his nobles, came on the platform to inquire the cause of the disturbance, and made gestures of surprise at finding the King of England raised from his sickbed, and confronting their common ally, the Duke of Austria, in such a menacing and insulting posture. Richard himself blushed at being discovered by Philip, whose sagacity he respected as much as he disliked his person, in an attitude neither becoming his character as a monarch, nor as a crusader. And it was observed that he withdrew his foot, as if accidentally, from the dishonoured banner, and exchanged his look of violent emotion for one of affected composure and indifference. Leopold also struggled to attain some degree of calmness, mortified as he was by having been seen by Philip in the act of passively submitting to the insults of the fiery King of England. Possessed of many of those royal qualities for which he was termed by his subjects the August, Philip might be termed the Ulysses, as Richard was indisputably the Achilles of the Crusade. The King of France was sagacious, wise, deliberate in counsel, steady and calm in action, seeing clearly and steadily pursuing the measures most for the interest of his kingdom. Dignified and royal in his deportment, brave in person but a politician rather than a warrior. The crusade would have been no choice of his own, but the spirit was contagious, and the expedition was enforced upon him by the church, and by the unanimous wish of his nobility. In any other situation, or in a milder age, his character might have stood higher than that of the adventurous Cordelion. But in the crusade itself, an undertaking wholly irrational, sound reason was the quality of all others least estimated, and the chivalric valour, 
which both the age and the enterprise demanded, was considered as debased if mingled with the least touch of discretion, so that the merit of Philip, compared with that of his haughty rivals, showed, like the clear but minute flame of a lamp, placed near the glare of a huge blazing torch, which, not possessing half the utility, makes ten times more impression on the eye. Philip felt his inferiority in public opinion, with the pain natural to a high-spirited prince, and it cannot be wondered at if he took such opportunities as offered for placing his own character in more advantageous contrast with that of his rival. The present seemed one of those occasions in which prudence and calmness might reasonably expect to triumph over obstinacy and impetuous violence. What means this unseemly broil betwixt the sworn brethren of the cross, the royal majesty of England, and the princely Duke Leopold? How is it possible that those who are the chiefs and pillars of this holy expedition, a truce with thy remonstrance, France, said Richard, enraged inwardly at finding himself placed on a sort of equality with Leopold, yet not knowing how to resent it. This duke, or prince, or pillar, if you will, hath been insolent, and I have chastised him. That is all. Here is a coil, forsooth, because of spurning a hound. Majesty of France, said the duke. I appeal to you, and every sovereign prince, against the foul indignity which I have sustained. This king of England hath pulled down my banner, torn and trampled on it. Because he had the audacity to plant it besides mine, said Richard. My rank as thine equal entitled me, replied the duke, emboldened by the presence of Philip. Assert such equality for thy person, said King Richard, and by St. George I will treat thy person as I did thy broidered kerchief there fit but for the meanest use to which kerchief may be put. Nay, but patience, brother of England, said Philip, and I will presently show Austria that he is wrong in this matter. Do not think, noble duke, he continued, that in permitting the standard of England to occupy the highest point in our camp, we the independent sovereigns of the crusade acknowledge any inferiority to the royal Richard. It were inconsistent to think so, since even the Oriflamme itself, the great banner of France, to which the royal Richard himself, in respect of his French possessions, is but a vassal, holds for the present an inferior place to the lions of England. But as sworn brethren of the cross, military pilgrims, who laying aside the pomp and pride of this world, are hewing with our swords the way to the holy sepulchre, I myself, and the other princes, have renounced to King Richard, from respect to his high renown and great feats of arms, that precedence which elsewhere and upon other motives would not have been yielded. I am satisfied that when your royal grace of Austria shall have considered this, you will express sorrow for having placed your banner on this spot, and that the royal majesty of England will then give satisfaction for the insult he has offered. The Spruchsprecher and the jester had both retired to a safe distance when matters seemed coming to blows, but returned when words, their own commodity, seemed again about to become the order of the day. The man of Proverbs was so delighted with Philip's politic speech, that he clashed his baton at the conclusion by way of emphasis, and forgot the presence in which he was, so far as to say aloud, that he himself had never said a wiser thing in his life. "'It may be so,' whispered Jonas Schwanker, "'but we shall be whipped if you speak so loud.' The duke answered sullenly that he would refer his quarrel to the general council of the crusade, a motion which Philip highly applauded as qualified to take away a scandal most harmful to Christendom. 
Richard, retaining the same careless attitude, listened to Philip until his oratory seemed exhausted, and then said aloud, I am drowsy. This fever hangs about me still. Brother of France, thou art acquainted with my humour, and that I have at all times but few words to spare. Know therefore at once I will submit a matter touching the honour of England neither to prince, pope, nor council. Here stands my banner. Whatsoever pennon shall be reared within three butts length of it, I, were it the oriflame, of which you were, I think, but now speaking, shall be treated as that dishonoured rag. Nor will I yield other satisfaction than that which these poor limbs can render in the lists to any bold challenge. I, were it against five champions instead of one. Now, said the jester, whispering his companion, that is as complete a piece of folly as if I myself had said it. But yet I think there may be in this matter a greater fool than Richard yet. And who may that be? asked the man of wisdom. Philip, said the jester, or our own royal duke, should either accept the challenge. But, O oh, most sage Spruksprecher, what excellent kings would thou and I have made, since on those whose heads these crowns have fallen, can play the proverb-monger and the fool as completely as ourselves? While these worthies plied their offices apart, Philip answered calmly to the almost injurious defiance of Richard. I came not hither to awaken fresh quarrels, contrary to the oath we have sworn and the holy cause in which we have engaged. I part from my brother of England as brother should part, and the only strife between the lions of England and the lilies of France shall be which shall be carried deepest into the ranks of the infidels. It is a bargain, my royal brother, said Richard stretching out his hand with all the frankness which belonged to his rash but generous disposition. And soon may we have the opportunity to try this gallant and fraternal wager. Let this noble duke also partake in the friendship of this happy moment, said Philip. And the duke approached half sullenly, half willing to enter into some accommodation. I think not of fools, nor of their folly, said Richard carelessly. And the archduke, turning his back on him, withdrew from the ground. End of section 111. This recording is in the public domain.